It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual Coven. Hello, my little nightmares. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. I'm Katie. And this is the very last week of October. It is. Can you believe it? Yeah, I can't believe that our very first spooky, creepy season is basically over now. I know. As of like tomorrow, yep. really. Because as of tomorrow, after we put up the Q&A, mm-hmm. that's the final spooky, creepy season thing. It's the final countdown. Until next yeah. year, guys. Yep. It's been fun. <laughs> bye. <laughs> We're love, going. Love you, bye. We're going. We're going home. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy to think. But you know we'll and keep it creepy all year round. All year that's round. that's what we do. This is our, it's our lifestyle. And the creepy merch is not going anywhere. No. It's staying not going right anywhere. Where it is all year long. And I'm thinking probably within the new year, like next year, hopefully 2021 is going to be a little bit better to everybody. Um, We can start throwing in more Tuesday episodes on the main feed. Yeah, that'll be good. It's very hard to believe that we are almost to our 40th episode. I know. This is 39. Mm-hmm. So, so it's almost guys, been a year. It'll be our potiversary. Mm-hmm. So if you have any ideas, some kind of big blowout bash... Yeah, what do you want us to do? Yeah, what do you want us to do for the potiversary? Do you want us, I mean, do you want to give us presents? Because if you do, gladly I will accept. DM me for my my, address. Yes, I will give you my my (laughs) box number. I'm just kidding. But what, yeah, we we could do something big for it. Yeah, start coming up with some ideas because we can't think for ourselves. Sure the fuck can't. So guys, remember that haunted house, the drive-thru haunted house that we talked about a few episodes back? We went last night. We did. We're a little disappointed in it, but it was fun. Yeah, we are a little bit underwhelmed. Underwhelmed. But we had fun just going, being... Yeah. Like just getting out for yes. a little bit, I think. And you know, cackling in the backseat. The boys right. drove, and which was kind of stupid of us because we could have had a better view. I didn't even think about that, though. That I was didn't the either. furthest thing from my mind. I was my, just like, please sit with me in the backseat so yeah. we can cackle. It'd yeah. be stupid. My only thing was like <laughs> not driving there. Right. You know what I mean? It was a long drive. It was a long but, drive. But um, I think my favorite part was when we drove by the guy, the butcher. Yeah, he was chopping up a body, and he was just going to fucking town. That guy was good. He was he licking was. it. He was rubbing the blood all over his face. He's fucked up. And it had an H H Holmes theme. Yeah, you guys. The whole thing. We fucking pulled up, and I saw these shirts. And Katie is blind as a fucking bat. I can't see anything. She can't see anything, so she had no idea there was even a shirt. No. Let alone who was on it. <laughs> nope. And I was like, you know, that guy really looks like H H Holmes. And then you like looked up something, right? On their website, yeah. Yeah, and that's how we found out that it actually was. There's like like their whole like made up backstory is yeah. the doctor that this the campgrounds that the haunted house was in mm-hmm. was like his dumping ground for the yeah. bodies and shit like that. It's so crazy. That's and cool. it would have been even more I mean it, it wasn't really scary at all. It was just kinda like jump scary. There were a few yeah, there were a few people that jumped out and like were banging on the windows. But if we would have been like out and walking in the yeah. woods, that would have been fucking scary. Yeah, I agree. You guys, Katie's husband was very disappointed that there weren't people coming out of the woods Uh, for him. So we decided, all four of us, that we're going to do a haunted house. Yeah, we decided. Probably never, but... um, Because we can do it better. We... (laughs) Anything they can do. 
<laughs> Anything H.H. Holmes can do. Honestly. We can do better. H.H. Holmes. Is that you? Is that you Hello? in the woods behind the tree? Rubbing blood on your face and licking it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, that guy's real fucked up. He probably listens to these kind of podcasts probably. about anything. Probably. Butcher. Is that you? <laughs> if you're out there. <laughs> Hello. Also, my husband was like unlocking and locking the doors. <laughs> and I was like, just fucking stop doing that. Like, that's not going to do. You know what I mean? Like, it's right. not scary me. Fucking stop. And then and he was just like annoying me with the noise. Yeah. I hate the noise of, of doors unlocking and locking. And then we drive into one little area and a mm-hmm. woman tries to open my door. Yeah. And I'm like, Rory, fucking, I yeah. swear to God. Like if, one of the workers. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to she like, jumped up you. and she like tried to open my door. And I would have, I, I would have fucking murdered Rory. I know. Cause I told you, have. I'm like, what if you, what if you were leaning on that yes. and she tried to open it and you just tumbled the fuck out? Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, do you have a headline today, Katie? I have a headline. I do. I just have to find it. Oh, okay. I was really, I was like, <laughs> I have a headline <laughs> for you. Okay. So this was, it's from a Facebook post from a reporter named Tess Moan. Tess Moan Maun. <laughs> oh, wow. It's M-A-U-N-E. M-A-U. Maun. I would, I would say Maun. And it looks like she's a reporter for a News on Six. Com. My name is Tesmon, and Tess I Mon. am a reporter for News on 6. Live Action com. 7 News. Ooh. Okay. Her post says, warning, very graphic details. Thomas Evans Gate and Bobby Lee Allen are accused of performing an illegal sex change on a 28-year-old Virginia man in Lafleur County. Fuck. Court records say the men kept the body parts in a freezer with plans to eat them. Oh. Yeah. The probable cause affidavit says the victim found the men through a website search about castration. Okay. It says Allen claimed he had 15 years of experience and told the victim he videoed the procedures for personal use. That wouldn't be something that I would get behind. No. Oh, oh, okay. You you, mm-hmm. you record totally the video fine. for personal use. Okay, I get it. I no. sign, I signed the consent form. The victim told investigators Alan told him the surgery wouldn't cost anything. Oh. I mean, it's sad to me that people that can't afford surgery or don't have health care have to resort to shit like this. Like right. back, you know, back right. alley shit. Court records show the victim flew into the Dallas-Fort Worth airport Sunday, October 11th, where Alan picked him up and then drove him to a cabin in LaFleur County. The affidavit says on Monday, October 12th, Allen had the victim get on a makeshift table that was covered in operation gowns. The victim told investigators Allen then injected him with Novocaine or Lidocaine in the needed areas. Court documents say victim was awake while his testicles were removed. Okay. The affidavit said Gates is Allen's partner and he helped with the surgery by handing Allen surgical equipment. The victim told investigators after the surgery, Alan said that he was going to consume the parts and laughed and said that he was a cannibal. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a cannibal. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly mm-hmm. how it was. The affidavit says Alan claimed he had six more clients on the way for the same operation. It shows Alan said he'd once, quote, left a man opened up to die overnight. 
Mm-hmm. What a great man Alan yeah. is. It also says Alan claimed he had a freezer with body parts inside and then showed the victim pictures. The victim said Alan offered to show videos, but the victim refused to watch. The court documents say the victim woke up Tuesday, October 13th with a lot of bleeding and passed out. The victim told investigators when he asked Alan to take him to the hospital, Alan said, no ER, no morgue. The affidavit says Alan finally drove the victim to the hospital in McAllister on Wednesday, October 14th, and told the victim if he died on the way, Alan would dump his body in the woods. Oh, that's that's incredibly really reassuring. Mm-hmm. The affidavit says when the men got to the hospital, Alan told the victim to tell medical staff that he'd done it to himself. The affidavit shows the victim told medical staff what had happened and they called police. So it goes on to say the LaFleur County Sheriff's Office got a search warrant for Alan's property. They found a plastic bag in a deep freezer with what appeared to be testicles inside. They also found electronic evidence, medication, mushrooms, medical equipment, syringes with clear liquid substances, a plywood table, and dried blood in a plastic tub. This is like a horror movie. It truly is. And it goes on to say that while investigators were searching the property, LaFleur County Sheriff Rodney Derryberry (laughs) says Alan and Gates were at the hospital trying to visit the victim. You don't get to visit the man you... You castrated. They're, that, they're like deranged. They're, wow. They are very I mean, sick. Obviously, the they're deranged, but like, ooh, they're trying to visit him. Oh, okay. That's where McAllister police arrested the men. Ugh, fuckers. God. All right. What do you got for me? Okay. Mine after is a, that little yeah, jolly after tale. that, I mean, you can't really follow that up. <laughs> but mine involves a man, a woman. A couple families and some arsenic. Oh, God. There's a flyer that went out. This is from a long time ago, 1924. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. And it says, pastor and matron planned deaths to remove obstacles. You know, they just loved arsenic back then. It was like really the only surefire way. They fucking loved it. They they used it for everything. God is it? Stick some arsenic on it. Have a rat? No problem. Arsenic. This says, quote, in 1924, Elsie Sweeten got away with murder. Her accomplice slash lover, the Reverend Lawrence Height, wasn't as lucky. By her own admission, the 32-year-old mother of three gave her coal miner husband, Wilford, three doses of arsenic, which had been provided to her by her lover. After my husband was hurt in the mine, Lawrence Height gave me a paper package which he told me contained poison, and he told me to give some of it to Wilford in anything, she told authorities after she was arrested. I gave Wilford, my husband, some chocolate candy in which I had mixed some of the poison. He became very ill, but later seemed to grow better, and on Tuesday I gave him more poison and oatmeal. (laughs) We can't have him getting better. (laughs) We need him to get worse. Now, ladies... Reverend, you told me he would die. On Friday, July 25th, I administered the final dose of poison, and he grew worse and died July 28th, the final dose having been mixed in tomato soup, Oh God! she testified. Every time Mr. Height came to the house during Wilford's illness, he gave me a note of encouragement to give Wilford more poison. Wow. Right? Keep it going. Before Wilford died, the Reverend Height converted the dying man, and after presided at his funeral. Ooh, that's fucked. I saved his soul, friends, Height told the congregation. Oh. I sat by his bedside as he lay dying and fought the good fight. Mm-hmm. And I won! Mm. It was the best sermon I ever preached. 
Height later told parishioners, go fuck yourself. Right. You don't, no one wins. On the way home from the cemetery, Height turned to Sweeten and said, well, that's over. I just wish the rest of the job was off my mind. (laughs) Height and Sweeten met when Reverend Height began ministering at her church. Soon after he arrived, Height stopped Mrs. Sweeten in the aisle of the church after his service and said, I'm sweeten on you, <laughs> and professed his love, or at least lust, for her. Mm. Sweeten's marriage to Wilford was troubled, and with just a little convincing, she was open to new adventures. Oh. Wow, I really can kill my husband. I wanted love, and Wilford Sweeten didn't give me the kind I wanted, she told reporters. He was a glacier. Cold. No words of affection. <laughs> Fuck. By con- he was a glacier. He was a glacier. Very cold and icy. Mm. Uh, by contrast, Reverend Height, who raised racehorses before finding religion, knew the proper things to say. He was our preacher, and he told me later that he loved me the moment he saw me, she continued. He won my confidence from the start, and later, my heart. Oh, I'm going to barf, sweeten. <laughs> There were several impediments to the couple being together, not the least of which was they're both married. Mm. So, Height came up with the plan that Sweeten would murder her husband and he would kill his wife, Anna. Simple enough. Logical. Wow. Not divorce. I wish I could be that smart. Heavens, no. It was on another night and again in church that my pastor told me that I belonged to him and that he was mine, Mm. Elsie told reporters after she was arrested. We've got rid of them, he said. We're going to kill them. I ran down the steps and down the road. It was terrible, too. Too terrible to think about. I went home and dropped to my knees and prayed. The more I tried to forget what Reverend Height said, the more it persisted in my mind. Mm, he planted that seed. Mm-hmm. And it grew. Probably more than one fucking seed. Probably a few seeds. And then it just seemed that I had to do what he told me. It didn't seem terrible anymore. <sighs> I'm like looking at you like she cozied right up to that idea. She let she it didn't sit. Take her that fucking long. She let it marinate for like a day. Just simmered, simmered, simmered. Yeah. The plan almost worked, but in small towns there are no secrets. Or guarantees. <laughs> Wilford Sweeten died first and the doctors just simply assumed that it was a result of his injuries from the mining accident. Sure. Two months later, Anna Height became ill from what the doctor thought was ptomaine poisoning. She failed to improve when on September 12th of 1924, she died. Hmm. Even before the murder, Sweeten and Height were the subjects of gossip. Height was seen lurking outside of Sweeten's home and signaling to her after Wilford left for work. The fact that the pair spent a great deal of time together before and after church services, and even had adjoining cabins at a revival, set tongues wagging. I'm sorry, you you were like begging to be caught. It wasn't long before the town druggist, John Webster, heard the talk and became suspicious. He consulted his poison registry, and sure enough, found the entry where Lawrence Height bought a large amount of arsenic. Arsenic? Arsenic. 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 To kill rats, Mm, (laughs) the minister said. Webster went to Sheriff Grant Holcomb and Prosecutor Frank G. Thompson, who, six days after Anna was murdered, ordered her body disinterred and autopsied. The results clearly showed that arsenic, not ptomaine, killed the minister's wife. An autopsy of Wilford showed the same method of death. Dun, dun, dun. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And that's the story. I mean, there's a lot wow. more to this article, but we're not going to, we're not here for this article. I feel like they were very dumb about that. Woo, Elsie and Reverend Height. I don't know what the fuck you two were thinking. Blind. You were just two burning, burning fools in love. Blinded by love. Blinded by love of the preacher man. All right. I've got some QOTDW. Did I say that right? QOTDW? It doesn't Q-O-T-D-W. sound right. O T D day W. Sure. All right. Question of the day week. Cat motherfucking savage wants to know if you could write each other's tombstones, what would they say? Oh God. (laughs) Here lies Tori. She died of worry. Oh yeah. That would be absolutely right. (laughs) She worried herself to death. Um, worrying about everything. She was going to die. (laughs) (laughs) I think for Katie, I would just write, here lies Katie Verderamo. Eh. <laughs> Meh. Could have been She's better. She's okay. <laughs> She's all right. Are you going to tell them what we're talking about today? We, okay, well. It's a little, it's a little hodgepodge. Yeah, we you know? started off as like, okay, we'll do murder houses. Mm-hmm. Well, it ended up being families. Yeah. That were murdered. Whole ass family In murders. Illinois, too. In their that homes. wasn't, yeah, that wasn't on purpose, Illinois, nope. but. Mm-mm how it is but here we are and you're first i'm always first every other week (laughs) (laughs) okay so like katie said i'm going to be talking to you about a family in illinois let's talk about a small town a town not far from where katie and i grew up ina illinois have you ever heard of ina illinois yeah ina isn't it a really small town or yeah. no, mm-hmm. is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's in southern Illinois. If you are a resident of Ina or a nearby surrounding town, you likely know of the Dardine family. You likely also know of the tragic fate that they met in the fall of 1987. Ina, Illinois, like you thought, is very, very small. In the 1980s, like I think the census from 1980, said that there were only 400 people that lived there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So even smaller than the town that we grew up in. Yeah. If you can fucking imagine. Now, even now, so the last census that they did, it said that there was only an estimated 2,279 people. Yeah. So, I mean, it's only been 20 years right. since then. So it grew a lot, it seems like. It must just be like a really rural I'm sure. It's kind of like, farm I, I would assume it's a farm, farm yeah. farming community. Um, but even 2,000 people is not that much no. in comparison right. to the rest of the fucking world yeah. that we do not live in. It bugs me when people are like, I'm from a small town. There's only like 50,000 mm-hmm. people there. I'm like 50 mm-hmm. fucking thousand. I, God damn, that is a major metropolitan area. I have never even <laughs> seen that many people in my life. No. <laughs> In 1986, Russell and Ruby moved to Ina. Russell went by Keith, his middle name, and Ruby went by Elaine, her middle name. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that strange? It is kind of weird. Two people who marry and go by their middle names. Yeah. Maybe it's not weird, but it is to me. So for the duration of this, I'm going to be calling them by their preferred names, which were Keith and Elaine. So Keith and Elaine moved to Ina with their two-year-old little boy named Peter in 1986. Keith grew up in Mount Carmel, Illinois. And Elaine was originally from Albion, Illinois. And I'm probably so- I'm probably saying that wrong. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Never heard of that one. Me either. I heard of Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. The pair decided to move to Ina and plant roots and call it their home. Keith worked as a treatment plant operator at the Rend Lake Water Conservancy District's nearby facility. And Elaine worked at a local office supply store. They rented land off of Illinois Route 37, and Route 37 is a major Illinois highway, and lived in a beige and white mobile home. 
Keith was 29 and Elaine was 30 years old. Lloyd and Joanne were their landlords, and they lived very close on a farm that butted right up against the land that Elaine and Keith rented from them. Okay. The family went to a local Baptist church. Keith was a vocalist, and Elaine was a pianist, and their church family was a very big deal to them. They valued their faith and family above all else. Elaine found out that she was expecting again, and the family couldn't be happier. Oh, A little baby. A little babe. Keith was definitely incredibly protective. He worried frequently about intruders and people that they didn't know, like coming to their home or breaking into their home. Oh, same. Yeah. Yeah, you are that way. He always made sure the doors were locked, and if someone came to the door, they refused to answer it unless they were expecting someone. Same, same. I should mention Ina's crime rate. Quote, there had been 15 homicides in Jefferson County during the previous two years. Wow. Starting with those committed by Thomas Odell, a Mount Vernon teenager who had killed his parents and three siblings as they individually returned to the house one night in 1985. Damn. Mount Vernon is very close to my mom and dad. Is it? Uh-huh. Very, very close. They I've would go heard there all of the Mount time. Vernon, but I didn't know mm-hmm. where It's exactly not far it from, like, the Arthur area that you guys went to that time. Okay. Yeah, it's very, like, the towns are very secluded down there. Like, oh, yes. Like, one little town, and then you got, like, miles ten miles. and miles yeah. between. There was a rape and a murder of a 10-year-old little girl in Ina <sighs> not long before the couple and their son had moved there. Um, and, like I said, those 15 homicides just in the previous two years and these Mm. are small little towns a small county that's crazy so that's a lot in comparison to like it's not some big metropolitan area right this is another quote and you may remember it a famous murder case occurred in ina in 1924 when reverend lawrence height and his lover elsie sweeten oh (laughs) you see what i did there anyway when his uh when lawrence height and elsie i know putting the pieces together all connected Mm -hmm. Um, and when they killed their spouses and it was revealed that they used arsenic, as you all learned in my article from earlier. Hmm. Isn't that, that was an Ina. Yeah. Crazy. Like decades before. Right, right. Yeah. So Keith told his mother that he regretted moving to Ina, like obviously Mm -hmm. most people probably did. And he (laughs) wanted to start making plans to move back to Mount Carmel. With the crime and his family, obviously the two don't really mix, at least not well. Mm -hmm. He told his mother he didn't feel safe in Ina, but he never mentioned any kind of threat or anything that was really making him feel uneasy. Okay. Aside from the 15 homicides in two years. I think they originally moved there because that's where they got their jobs or around where they got right, their jobs. So. Right. It's just with a population that low. That's a high like percentage. Very high. Shit. It didn't seem super weird to his mother because Ina, obviously, like we've said, is known for being very crime ridden and not the best place to be raising a family. So it seemed like a normal thing. Like mm-hmm. it would probably be more weird if he didn't want to move back. Right. You yeah. know. He wanted to move back home, find a job, and protect his family. Keith and Elaine put their mobile home up for sale and started searching for jobs and making their plans. It seemed like all of this started happening very fast, so there is speculation about Keith and Elaine getting some kind of threats or something going on. Okay. In the fall of 1987, Elaine was now seven and a half months pregnant, and Peter was right around three years old. The new baby, whether it be a girl or a boy, because they didn't do any kind of testing or anything, mm-hmm. was going to be named Casey if it was a girl or Ian if it was a boy. Aww. On November 17th into the 18th, Keith was scheduled for an overnight shift at the water treatment plant. However, he failed to show up to a shift and was a no-call no-show. 
His supervisor called his house periodically through the night and day, and there was no answer. And the supervisor then called Keith's parents, and they said that they had not heard from Keith or Elaine. His parents decided to call the Ina police and meet them outside of their mobile home. He had a spare key. I think maybe his dad. Mm -hmm. His dad had a spare key. And they decided to do a welfare check. When the police get to the mobile home, they knock on the door. No answer. They walk around the house. They try other areas, doors, windows. Mm -hmm. No answer. No one is, like, stirring in the home. Right. They use flashlights, and ultimately they see people in bed under blankets inside. The door was unlocked, which is already unusual as Mm -hmm. fuck for this family yeah because they're very neurotic about this door being locked so they go in obviously with the door being unlocked they find the people that they saw under the blankets to be completely still and unmoving they moved the blankets back and found elaine and peter deceased and a very very tiny baby Uh. also deceased Was the baby taken out? So Elaine and Peter had both been bound and gagged. They were both found severely beaten by a baseball bat that Uh. Keith had given Peter for a present. No. The infant was also beaten. Elaine and Peter had fractured skulls. And Elaine had gone into spontaneous labor while being attacked. Oh my god. They weren't totally sure if it was while she was while she was being attacked or while her son was being attacked or yeah. just because she was, you know, that can happen, mm-hmm. right? I mean, she was her body was going into shock. Right. She didn't know what to do. It just happened. Yeah. Either way, no matter how it happened, she went into labor and the perpetrator beat the baby as well. The baby was a baby girl uh, and her name would have been Casey like I said. Yeah. It's said that the killer tried to clean up the crime scene a little bit prior to fleeing. It isn't known if the baby girl was alive or stillborn because she would have been about seven and a half months gestation, which she is a, would have lived. Yeah, it's a, probably it's, it's a seven and a half months gestation is very probable that she yeah. would have survived. Motherfucker! All three. God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All three. So Elaine, the mom, Peter, the three-year-old, and Casey, the newborn baby girl, died as a result of blunt force trauma. There was no sign of forced entry, which is strange, like we were saying, Mm -hmm. because they are so anal about their doors being locked, not letting anyone in unless they're unless it's known they're coming. Right. And not answering the door. But the even bigger question here, aside from all of this, is where is Keith? Oh, he's not there. I didn't even catch that. mm -mm. I was worried about the baby. Yeah. Where is Elaine's husband? Where is Peter and Casey's father? Suspicion immediately fell on him because he's gone. It's like he murdered his family and then left, right? Right. Keith's 1981 Red Plymouth was gone. He also had a truck which was there at the house. Roadblocks are set up immediately. Police officials are on high alert for this Red Plymouth. And police go to talk to Keith's family in Mount Carmel and question them about Keith and his family and where Keith could have possibly gone. The next day, though, the Red Plymouth is found in Benton, Illinois, 10 miles from the family home by a bank and a police station. Blood was everywhere in that vehicle, all over. 10 miles away? 10 miles away. From the house? From the mobile home. All right. Um, it was a major, major crime scene in the case. And not long after, hunters found Keith's deceased body one mile from the mobile home. Oh, shit. One mile. Keith had been shot. Shot. He had been shot three times, once in the skull, once in his cheek, and once in the right side of his face. It almost makes you wonder if he was lured outside somehow yeah. so they could take there's... care of him first because he was the biggest threat. Yeah, there's a lot of theories. I'm sure there one. are. 
So he wasn't found to be beaten with a bat like the other three members of the family, but instead was fatally shot. He was also castrated. Oh, wow. His genitals were cut off, and it said that his penis was put inside of his mouth. Oh, that's very, very personal. Very I mean, personal. In the sense that it was probably somebody who knew him. Right. And some people say that that part, like the castration is 100% that happened. Some people say that the penis in the mouth thing is a rumor. Mm-hmm. But from what I read, there could be truth to it. It doesn't seem that far out of the realm of possibility. Not after He's someone gonna, castrates yeah. someone. Damn. You know? It's unknown in what order the murders happened. It's just thought that all of the members of the family died within one to two hours of each other. Mm -hmm. Elaine, Peter, and Casey were dead for 12 hours by the time they were found, and Keith was murdered and deceased within 24 to 36 hours at the time he was found. Okay. One thing I thought of was what if Keith was murdered first, Mm -hmm. basically what you just said, to kind of get him out of the way. Right. He was then disposed of, and then they used his house keys to get into the house. That's true. I thought about that because that's why the door wasn't locked. Right. But when you think about it, unless they put up their own like deadbolts or chain locks or whatever... It's not going to be that hard to pick a little lock on yeah, a mobile maybe, home. Yeah, maybe it was picked too, but Just, they... You know what I mean? Yeah. We'll never know. Sure. But no. that is a, that's a good thought, though. Yeah, I was just thinking that would be why the door wouldn't be locked, because right. they used his keys that were on his Plymouth keychain. Yeah. But anyway, that's just complete speculation by me. There's nothing to back that up. It is speculated, though, and I think we can both agree that this is a very passionate type of murder. Mm-hmm. Someone who knew the family, or at least knew Keith especially due to the severity of the crime and the nature of the crime. The fact that the family was beaten, but he was shot and his genitals were cut off is just like right there. It's about normally, Keith. Yes, normally, even serial killers, when they go into a home and they murder a family, they're all done the same way. Right. They use a bat. They use an axe. They use a knife. Right. They uh, bound and gag them and leave them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not like different instruments. Right. Not for, usually. For multiple people. It seems more to me like passion and rage, like there was something more going on here, something deeper. Mm -hmm. Despite Ina being a high crime community, the quadruple murders of the Dardine family shook the community. Children were no longer walking home alone. Sports events, like when kids would wait outside for like buses or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, did not happen. There was supervision. There was indoor waiting around. There was an uptick in the purchase of firearms and security systems in the area. And it just really instilled fear in the entire community and surrounding area of Ina, Illinois. One resident in the area said, quote, Nobody is complacent anymore. Everybody stays aware of their surroundings, said Mary Younger, who worked in the town market, end quote. Another quote. Dr. Richard Gerritsen, a family physician who doubled as the Jefferson County coroner, told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in early December that many of his patients talked to him about the case and how it had disturbed them. One man who said he lived half a mile, 900 meters, from the Dardines trailer told Garrison that he was having difficulty sleeping and had lost 14 pounds, which is 6.4 kilograms, as a result of the stress. Also unable to sleep was the Dardines' landlord's daughter, who told her parents years later that she kept her bedroom light on and read all night out of fear. Uh. Robert Lewis, the Franklin County coroner, felt much of this fear was unjustified. Oh. And that was a quote, but this is a quote by him. I don't think there is a rational basis for the near hysteria, he told the newspaper. The people are frightening each other, end quote, for him. 
But this okay. is still the quote. People were so afraid, he said, that if someone ran out of gas in the county, he would not seek assistance in any nearby homes, but would instead walk to the nearest highway and hitch a ride, end quote. How is that any better? Right. I don't know. But <laughs> the thing is, like, why can't people be afraid? Yeah. It's just like he's kind of desensitized, probably because he's a fucking coroner. Right. And but because still. I, it does have a high crime rate. Mm-hmm. But when a whole ass family yeah. is murdered, right. a quadruple homicide, mm-hmm. beaten with a baseball bat, a newborn, a, a seven and a half month gestation baby, and a man shot fatally three times and castrated with, a, with his penis in his mouth. Yeah. I would be afraid. Right. WISL ABC, a local television station in Harrisburg, offered $10,000 into the reward fund in the invest- in the investigation into the murders of Keith, Elaine, Peter, and Casey. The surviving Dardine family and other relatives also contributed $10,000. The American Publishing Company also contributed, and the American Publishing Company is a parent company of some of the area newspapers. Over 30 police officers worked full time on the case. Over 30 in that small of an area. That's a big deal. That is a lot. They interviewed around 100 people and there were a few tips that came in. But any and all leads ended up leading to nothing. Right. Did they have like um, forensic evidence or anything? Not really. And I'll tell you about that. Okay. When the police spoke to a neighbor of the Dardines, it was found out that Elaine and Keith were raising or possibly even breeding Labrador Retriever puppies. Okay. The neighbor had seen a man stopping by the house a number of times. The neighbor supposedly asked Elaine who the man was, like during just a normal conversation. And Elaine simply said it was a friend of Keith's and then changed the subject. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I guess that, if that is the case, and let's just say on on the offshoot that that was the murderer, Mm -hmm. that would make sense if they knew him, why the door wasn't locked. True. You know, and why they let him in. This is a quote. Investigators were stumped to find a motivation. Laying in plain view was cash, jewelry, and a video camera, none of which had been stolen. There was no sign of forced entry. The back door was unlocked. While Keith had been sexually mutilated, investigators ruled out sexual motivation. Investigators couldn't find any evidence of extramarital affairs, which could have resulted in a jealous rage, nor could they find any debt, troubles, or grudges. We have all the pieces of the puzzle. We just have to put them in the right order, said Detective Mike Anthus, end quote. Someone literally emasculated him. Oh, yes. Like you had to murder his family. Right. You know, and and also not even just that he was shot instead of beaten and the genitals and all of that. But he was also in a different location. Right. You know what I mean? It just all to me signals like alarm bells, like somebody was pissed at him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so let's talk about suspects. There are two prime suspects who also happen to be serial killers. Oh, the first is Rafael Resendez Ramirez, and he's also known as a railroad killer. He traveled on freight trains and would jump off here and there whenever he felt like it. He murdered people and jumped back onto the train and just carried on. Police considered him a suspect initially because of the train tracks. They had train tracks like right across from them. Mm-hmm. He also favored beating people to death. OK, so I mean, two little links there. He was arrested in 1991, but there was no evidential link to the Dardine family. Yeah, that doesn't really make, that doesn't do it for me. It's very far-fetched, right? Because why go through the whole hassle of taking him out, taking Keith out there and doing all of that? And different, not just If you just want to kill people. Exactly. 
Another suspect, Tommy Lynn Sells, says he was addicted to killing people by the age of 14. Oh, nice. He's a fairly probable suspect, one that most people think committed this crime. Okay. So Tommy left home early in life around the age of 13. He murdered ruthlessly all over the place and, like I said, claimed he was addicted to it. He is known to have murdered young girls before, and he actually ended up confessing to killing the Dardine family. Okay. He said he found religion after being locked up. It said that he was linked, linked, okay, linked to 22 murders, but he confessed to 70, and he may have just been confessing to murders to buy himself time because he was sentenced to death. Right. You well, know yeah, what I mean? either that or he just liked it. He, he just liked, liked it. Some of them just he, liked he to do that. He was real fucked up. If you watch any of his interviews, this dude... I just feel like it was someone who knew them, though. Yeah. This dude um, is just real fucked up. Yeah. I mean, not that all serial killers aren't. <laughs> but, yeah. But, like, he just... It's just yeah. a feeling, a vibe, mm-hmm. a whole vibe, you know? Right. Once police started looking into Tommy Lynn's cells, they realized his story changed, and it changed frequently. Yeah. One time he said he met Keith at a truck stop, and then the next time he met him at a pool hall. Apparently they became friends, and Keith invited him to his home for dinner. Tommy said that he was invited into their home then for a threesome. Their mm-hmm. family disputes this, like the 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 Dardine family disputes this. Right. They aren't quote unquote those type of people. Oh. I don't I don't know about you, but I wouldn't tell my mom if I was having threesomes. No. You know what I mean? Like she wouldn't know that. No. One hundred percent no. <laughs> I feel like that could be something like they're not those type of people. You don't right. know what type of people not they that are. It's a shameful thing, but no. you don't necessarily want your parents to know uh-uh. about that shit. Like my my mom wouldn't know who I was no. of, it wouldn't matter if I was having she just would not know. No. Tommy said that he was upset about the fact that Peter slept in the bed with Elaine and Keith. Oh. He's three years old. His ra- So Tommy said his rage took over and he entered one of his blackout episodes. He said something in his past triggered this, like the whole thing about the bed and stuff with, the- with Peter. Mm. He had blackout episodes at other times too and he would randomly wake up in different places with blood all over him and he would start having flashbacks over the next few days about the murders he had committed. So he said. I feel like he's just a storyteller. Mm-hmm. He told police that he held Keith at gunpoint, forced him into his red Plymouth, and shot him, castrated him, and disposed of his body in the field. In another story he told, he said he got off of a train and saw the for sale sign outside of the family's mobile home. He was intoxicated, he knocked on the door, and he got in pretending he wanted to buy the house. He held Keith at gunpoint, forced him to tie up Elaine and Peter, and then he made Keith drive the red Plymouth to the field, murdered him, and castrated him. Tommy said he went back to the family's home, raped Elaine, and beat the three of them to death. He also said multiple stories about how he left Elaine's body positioned as well. Mm-hmm. The police knew Elaine wasn't raped, so that wasn't a thing. I was just going to ask that. So it made no sense. Right. His story changed a thousand times. They didn't believe him. Well, and you have to go off the basis of if that stuff was made public... Exactly. He would have known Exactly. anyway. There was a podcast that I listened to that will be linked in the show notes, the Mile Higher podcast, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they had questioned if a medical examiner could tell if a rape occurred, even if she had given birth to. Oh, interesting. And so I know like DNA Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, semen, all of that would be looked for. But obviously... You're injured down there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if she, and she did pass the baby normally. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
It probably would be really hard to, to know. I feel like it would be hard to know because they obviously probably inspected her body for semen and found none. And yeah. maybe there wasn't DNA or maybe they didn't they didn't test for DNA. I'm not sure. But it's very possible that Tommy Lynn Sells falsely confessed to the murders of the Dardeen family. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. Right. There was no evidence. Actual, concrete, hard evidence. To tie him to it. Yeah. But... It's important to note that apparently the crime scene and items recovered as evidence were never tested for DNA. There was never a DNA sweep. There was never any kind of DNA collected from the home. Did they do that then? Yes. Okay. I wonder why. I wonder if they still have the stuff. I don't know. The Dardeen family, like Keith's late family and other relatives, are still trying to get the police to conduct DNA testing. Yeah. Why Why wouldn't they? Two huh. FBI profilers visited the crime scene and were unable to use typical analytical methods, and thus nothing came of the visit. Mm-hmm. And the family and community believe that Tommy committed the crime. That's what they believe. However, if it wasn't Tommy... There's a few other speculations that have been talked about and have gone around by the townspeople and people who have looked into the case. Mm-hmm. One of them is, of course, the big 80s, you know, the satanic panic. Right. Right. Um, it was a huge thing. This was in 1987. There was a cult specialist brought in to debunk this, and the specialist said that nothing pointed to this being any kind of a cult murder or right. anything like that. There was someone else, and it was a woman who studied forensic science. She believed that the Dardeen family murders were linked to the mob, which I feel is fucking unlikely. Mm-hmm. There also could have been another woman or a man that Keith was maybe involved with, and something happened and things just went bad. Yeah. It seems to me that someone just had it out for Keith. We've said it yeah. multiple times. They mm-hmm. cut off his dick. Right. That's a pretty big fucking thing. Um, so yeah, I just feel someone had a lot of pent up rage and anger and it seems to me like everything that happened was aimed at him mm-hmm. to kill family members in multiple ways to dispose of somebody's here, some there to take that much time and yeah. effort committing a crime. Uh-huh. It just seems like something was up and it was centered around Keith. Also, he was really he 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 really wanted to get out of Ina. Mm-hmm. Why did he want to get away so badly? Right. We that's get it. True. There's crime, but there was more to it. There it was happening so fast. He was so determined. Yeah. Talked about it all the time. I feel like Keith had some secrets. I think he may have. Not and that it's is, his fault, but no. I think he had secrets. No. And this is not saying anything bad about Keith at all. No, because this it's... fucking happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Every day, all day with many, many people. Mm-hmm. And I and clearly he didn't want his family to get no. murdered. No. It's just there was something odd that happened, fell into the wrong crowd, something. Yeah. He made some kind of just like the wrong connection somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, this is pure speculation. And it should be said that Keith's family say that there that there is no way that like an extramarital affair is a possibility. Mm-hmm. No way. That he, is from his family. They don't know. No one does. Mm-mm. No one does. I feel like you can't say any way that for no. sure this is not a possibility. You you, you can't. It, you if just you can't. want things to get figured out, right? You no, know? right. I understand wanting to like protect your Absolutely. your sons, and you, you know. don't want to think that anyone that you love could be capable of anything like that. No, you know. But the truth is, no one knows anyone. And like I said, I feel like he was a good person, mm-hmm. and I feel like something just got messed up in there yeah something just happened i agree and it just was like a fucking tornado yeah after spiraling Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't the best analogy there but i'm very (laughs) flustered here we we got it makes me sad okay quote 
At least once a week, Joanne called the Mount Vernon Sheriff's Office to nudge officers to keep working on her son's case. I carried Keith for nine months. I raised him. I worshipped the ground he walked on. He was a good man and a good father, she said, and I will never, ever give up. Uh, Isn't that heartbreaking? sad. I feel bad for Joanne. Joanne had her own theories that somebody wanted Keith to sell drugs and he refused, or Elaine turned down somebody's advances, causing them to lash out. Mm. The Keddy murders are an unsolved 1981 quadruple homicide in Keddy, California, a rural resort town in the Sierra Nevada. The victims were Glenna Susan, Sue Sharp, her son, John Stephen Sharp, Daughter, Tina Lynn Sharp, and John's friend, Dana Hall Wingate. I know that one. Do you? Mm-hmm. The murders took place in Cabin 28 of the Caddy Resort during the late evening of April 11th, 1981, or early the following morning. They're not sure. Mm-hmm. And the bodies of Sue, John, and Dana were found on the morning of April 12th by Sue's 14-year-old daughter, Sheila. Isn't that awful? Yeah. And Sue's two younger sons, Rick and Greg, and Justin Smart, Uh, also found them. They were also all in the house, but they were unharmed. Mm -hmm. Tina was missing from the scene. Tina remained a missing person until April of 1984 when her skull and several other bones were recovered at Camp 18, California, near Feather Falls in Butte County. Multiple leads and suspects were examined in the intervening years, but no charges were filed. Subsequent sheriffs in Plumas County would state that the initial investigation was disorganized and poorly conducted, resulting in the overlooking of crucial evidence. Several new leads have been announced in the 21st century, including the discovery of a hammer in a pond in 2016, as well as announcements regarding the discovery of new DNA evidence. The Ketty murders have received national media attention, including coverage in People magazine, an investigation discovery documentary series, BuzzFeed's Unsolved in an independent 2008 feature documentary documentary titled Cabin 28. Renewed public interest in the case was sparked in part by the release of the 2008 horror film, The Strangers. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, I hate that. And yep. I knew, I knew you hate that. I mean, we like that movie, but it's scary. It is a scary movie. Which various internet bloggers theorized was inspired by the Ketty murders. Despite slight similarities, the film made no such claims to have being based on the crimes. End quote. And that's, that was linked to the Dardeen family members because of the multiple homicides okay and the disposal of one body somewhere else and the rest of the bodies in the home okay so they thought i was yeah i was wondering why (laughs) yeah (laughs) they thought that that was possibly even though it was california and illinois right there's some serial killers that move all over the place oh yeah i talked about that too in mine yeah yeah so that was just one that's just another speculation that it could be the same person yeah you never know you know because that of the, story the of the caddy murders is fucking terrible yeah, yeah they're I, all bad but i oh. just did a little bit of research on it when i yeah. when i saw this yeah and it's just sad mm-hmm. but yeah so some people just speculated because of the nature of it yeah and the horrifying it's just oh so yeah. grotesque and the fact that one body was somewhere else and the rest were in a home that it could have been the same person the case of the quadruple homicide of the Dardeen family, Elaine Dardeen, Keith Dardeen, and their children, Peter and baby Casey Dardeen, has long since gone cold. Mm-hmm. It remains unsolved, and justice has yet to be served. Uh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. And the that is the, the case of the Dardeen family. Now I want you to tell me a story. I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. I'm going to tell you about the, okay, Fawn Schmidt. 
Okay. Axe Murders. Fonschmidt is the name of the family, mm-hmm. and I had no fucking clue how to say that. I had an idea, but I was wrong. So this very nice person in a group that I'm in actually made a video on how to say the name. So, Germany, I know you're listening. <laughs> Sorry if I'm wrong. We see you, Germany. <laughs> we see you. These murders actually happened in 1912, just over a month after the Velisca Axe murders in Iowa. Mm. This happened in Payson, Illinois, which is about four and a half hours from Velisca, okay. actually. And people to this day are still kind of torn on if it was the same person. But I think it's interesting that everyone knows about the Velisca murders. Like, pretty, like everyone knows about that. Everyone has done them. Yes. Every but, single podcast has, yeah. and, and YouTuber mm-hmm, has covered them. Not many people know about these, though. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was Katie who said she wanted us to cover the Velisca axe murders. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. So, Katie, you can tell me. But um, this is basically, it's it's very similar. It is. And we'll so. probably do those later on down the and road. And lesser too. known. Right. And the little fact I found, I wouldn't call it a fun one, but by 1912, an average of eight families were murdered by axe oh, per wow. year. Whole families. Per year. Murdered with axes per year. Like it was, it was a thing happening. There was this axe murderer, a German immigrant named Paul Mueller, and... You true crime people may have seen his name pop up because it's believed that he's responsible for at least 100 murders. He started in New England, went south, went to the Midwest, Texas, the West Coast, and then back again. Just a traveling boy. And then there's Henry Lee Moore, who had killed at least 25 people with an axe. And some people said you might see these names pop up because some people attribute Velisca to, to this guy, this Henry Lee right. Moore guy. Right. In any case, I didn't realize just how much this was happening back then. I had no idea that this was like an actual, like, what's the word? Pandemic? Epidemic? <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Epic. That was happening. Epidemic. Yeah. Um, I didn't know until you just told me, yeah. actually. But in the case of the Fawnschmidt murders, one might be more inclined to think that it was more personal than a traveling axe murderer preying on entire families. Why? I'll tell you. Okay. So just listen. Okay. So Payson is a tiny little farming community outside of Quincy, Illinois. The Fawnschmidt family had settled there like on the outskirts of outskirts of Payson, not in town. They lived on a little farm right outside of Payson. And you know how it is. Like you've got farmhouses. Sometimes your closest neighbor is like a mile away. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes more. In the case of the Fawnschmidt farm, the closest thing to them was a small schoolhouse. It was Hibner School, about a mile down the road. Their house was a white frame, two-story farmhouse. They had two barns behind it, a chicken house, and a windmill. The family who lived in the home were Matilda Fawnschmidt and her husband Charles, their 15-year-old daughter Blanche. Oh, Blanche. And they, yeah. And they'd also taken in a boarder, a young school teacher named Emma Kempen. Emma had just been hired to teach at the school down the road. So she was staying with them. She had like, I, I couldn't find her exact age, but she had just graduated high school and took like her teaching exam and passed it. So she was very young too. So on the morning of Saturday, September 28th, 1912, the mailman, William Long, made his way from the schoolhouse, which was closed because it was the weekend, to the Fawnschmidt farm, which was eerily quiet. Usually he would see the family out and about, tending to the farm and the animals, but on that day, no one seemed to be around. He figured, well, they probably just made the trip into the city today, they didn't have any outgoing mail, so the mailman went on his way. 
There was a woodcutter named Roy Peter who also passed by the farm at around 7 a.m. that day. And in the breeze, he noticed a horrible burning smell. Oh, God. He oh, fig- God. Yeah. I don't like it mm-hmm. already. He figured that Charles Fawnschmidt had to burn some of his hogs that had contracted cholera. Now, cholera was like sweeping through the area. And in order to stop the spread from animal to animal, they would burn the bodies of the dead ones who contracted it. So the smell didn't really raise like a big red flag for Roy Peter. Later that night, when the sun started going back down, Roy made his trip back home, once again having to pass by the Fonchimit farm. And he noticed the burning smell had gotten stronger, but he didn't stop. He couldn't see a clear source of the smell. Mm-hmm. So around 2 a.m. early the next morning, Henry Shrek, a neighbor on a farm nearby, got a phone call. When he picked up the phone, all he heard was fire, Fawnschmidt's. Oh, God. Yeah. Henry looked outside in the direction of the Fawnschmidt farm, and the sky was red. He left to go help, and as he got closer, he couldn't tell if it was the barn that was on fire or the house. He finally made it to the property, and he saw that it was the house that was on fire. That's so scary. And, like, such, like, an adrenaline, like... Oh, God. Mm -hmm. The chimney and the tin roof had collapsed already, and the two-story home was practically leveled. And the flames were just roaring. He called out for Charles or Matilda, but nobody answered. Within minutes, the four Lear brothers from another farm, they got there, and so did Gus Kaufman, who lived nearby. I don't think any of them wanted to admit that they knew the Fonschmidt family had likely died in the fire. Sure. Because they were still, like you said, adrenaline. Right, right. Um, They were talking amongst themselves about how the family clearly wasn't home because they would have gotten out. Charles would have known that a fire started. Smoke couldn't have taken them all. They must be in the city or maybe they're staying with a family member. Did they have vehicles? Wait, when is this? 1912. There were vehicles, but they didn't own one. They had a buggy. Okay. So... One of the neighbors that had gathered at the house, they got on the phone at another neighbor's house in hopes of figuring out where the Fonschmitz and Emma could be. Meanwhile, one of them goes to check out the barn, and he tells the others there are horses in there that haven't been fed or watered in a while. Oh, no. And the Fonschmitz buggy was sitting there. The wagons were loaded up but left untouched. That's when they knew. They waited for daylight because there was really nothing that they could do, and then they all decided that they had to take the roof off the house to look for the bodies. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. They actually used, so they climbed the telephone poles and cut the wires to use to take the roof off. Also, it had rained the day before, and they noticed sharp wheel tracks on the ground, meaning that someone had been there after it had stopped raining. So back at the house, the men used pitchforks to poke holes in what was the metal roof, and they thread the phone lines through it, and they lift it up. God, that's very creative. That's what I was thinking, too. I wouldn't have thought And that's why I put it in here, because I'm like, wow, that's cool. Right. I I would have never thought to do (laughs) that. My brain doesn't think of creative solutions for anything. No, they were just doing it. So they douse the flames with water, and they start to check out the house. They start in the kitchen. They check the stoves. They determine that neither of the stoves were the source of the fire. When they looked in what was the cellar, they found the body of Charles Fonschmidt. He was so badly... Yeah. He was so badly burned that the flesh and bones of his head, 
arms, shoulders, upper trunk, legs, and half of his lower trunk were completely gone. There was just like a thigh. Yeah. Ugh. Mm -hmm. And they could, they recognized some of his clothes. Ugh. I hate that for them. A doctor would later testify that Charles's body had been dismembered before being set on fire. Fuck. Near Charles's body, they also found the head of an axe that had blood essentially baked onto it from the heat. Oh, no. So in what would have been the upstairs bedrooms on what was left of several blood-stained mattresses, they found the remains of Matilda, Blanche, and Emma. Their bodies were intact enough to see that they had been bludgeoned with an axe, too. So by this point, there was a crowd gathering outside, like police. Some people say up to like a thousand people My God. came to see what was happening. It was a big deal. Those wheel tracks that were found near the barnyard, those were cordoned off. They figured that whoever was responsible for the murders drove in on some type of buggy that Saturday and mm-hmm. hid out. And now that it was daylight, they also found horseshoe tracks that seemed out of place. So they preserved those too. So the Fawnschmitz, they also had an adult son. Oh. His name was Ray. He didn't live in the home. He actually had a job in Quincy working on the railroad, and he was staying there, like, at the job site in a tent with one of his uncles. Okay. Word got to them about what had happened to his family and Emma, but according to him, he didn't know about the dismemberment and the hacking, for lack of a better term. He knew that his family had died in a fire. He didn't know that they were necessarily murdered. Oh, okay. Ray and his uncle went to Ray's grandpa's home where they contacted the coroner. They picked up his aunt and then they made the trip to the Fawnschmidt homestead. Now, Ray was 20, almost 21. He was described as handsome, ambitious, arrogant, a hard worker. He actually, like... He had no problems, like, spending money, taking on debt. He had his own little company. He was very ambitious. He just thought that he could just take the world and, like, everyone should kind of, like... And what is Like, he was again? just so great. Ray. Ray. Mm-hmm. Ray also had a fiancé named Esther who met him at his family's home that day. Okay. So, meanwhile, the police and the sheriff's deputies gather armed citizens and they begin sweeping the countryside, hoping that they would find the killer, like, hiding out somewhere. Sure. They brought in the bloodhounds. They scoured for miles but came up with nothing. They basically did everything that they knew how to do. Right. And could with the resources they probably had there. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, this was huge news, and within days there were headlines like, Degenerate who had perpetrated similar axe murders in Iowa and Colorado recently. So they were already starting to link it to these other axe murders. Mm -hmm. And because these murders were so similar to Velisca, like I've said 500 times, this prompted the Iowa Attorney General to send a detective who had worked the Velisca case down to Illinois to check out this case. Hmm, Smart thinking. Yeah. And the governor of Iowa sent Sheriff Loftus, who was a criminologist. Oh, okay. The Chicago Police Department sent two detectives, Barden and Bates. Ooh, Barden and Bates. The detective team. The the detective duo. Barden Barden and Bates. So when they examined the tracks that were made in the dirt that they found, they noticed that the tracks came in from the direction of Quincy, and they left going the same direction. And who came from that direction? Who was living in Quincy? Ray Ray. No, Ray. 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 It isn't Ray, is it? Well, you can be the judge. So we're back to the day of the discovery of the bodies. It, after what I just talked about, it was a few days, you know, they're, they're investigating sure, shit's sure, happening. Sure, but surely 
Ray is not the only person who lives in Quincy. <laughs> uh, well, right. You know? I know. Okay. Yep. Anywho. And he visits his parents. Right. You know? So, but there's the whole thing about after the rain. But you can't, you can't, it's just like a wheel mark. Right. It's not like a tire tread. You right. know what I mean? Hmm. It okay. wasn't rubber. I don't know. So we're back to the day of the discovery of the bodies and the fire and, and everything. While Ray was busy wandering around with his fiance and her dad, nonchalantly showing them what was left of his family's bodies, he was reportedly acting nervous but normal. And like, yes, everyone grieves differently, but this, it was sus <laughs> to them. Yeah. You know right, what I mean? Very sus. He seemed kind of disconnected from what was happening around him. Someone reported that they found him crying near one of the barns. Well, I and, would think so. Yeah. And he asked for a shot of whiskey, which was completely out of character for him. I guess like, so th- it, they were a German family and it, the the book that I read about this kept saying how stoic the German men were. Sure. Like, they wouldn't cry. But I, I, mean, I don't know. How many German men have all of their family members exactly. killed? You know? Exactly. I think I would want a shot of whiskey if yep. my mom and dad and yeah. sister had died yeah. in a fire by I an know. axe murderer. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless. Yep. Stop. It was stop, just their train of thought, you know? Stop holding German men to high <laughs> fucking standards, okay? Stop it. Smack God your hand. damn it. The bloodhounds seemed to have followed a scent trail to raise a work tent in Quincy and at his fiance Esther's house, but of course he goes to those places. Right. I. That I doesn't do it for me. And it's like, it had been a few days. Right. And Ray was at the house. Right. You know what he, I mean? I mean, he says so, he wasn't there that weekend, but he obviously no, had been there before. Right. But I mean, he was there that that yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Right. So then after the blood, the bloodhounds got there. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's bullshit evidence. It really is. I think so, too. And plus, Ray doesn't just go to Quincy and go in his tent. Right. He eats there. He shops there. Right. He, That's you know, where he lives. Lives, yeah. lives. You so know? why would the dogs go straight to... Like, you know what I mean? Right. I, I don't know. I don't know. Public opinion scales were already tipped against Ray. And I feel like the dogs might have been encouraged a little, honestly. Yeah. Because... There there are conflicting reports, like literally the same couple people changed their witness statements saying like, oh, I drove by that Saturday night and saw someone in the house. Oh, no, wait, I didn't. Like just back and forth. So unreliable witnesses. Exactly. Yeah. But they were just like laser focused on Ray. I feel like they just wanted to have a, a solved crime. Yeah. So they've got, they've pretty much got their minds made up that he did it. He wasn't arrested yet. So the Monday after the fire, Ray picked out caskets for his family's remains. Mm. Um, and their funeral was that Tuesday. Okay. So it happened on the weekend. And then this is the next week now. And since learning that he was a suspect, besides picking out the caskets and attending the funeral, Ray was in his lawyer's office every single day. Yeah. So there was a coroner's inquest with the the witnesses, the neighbors who found the bodies, the doctor who worked on the bodies, surviving family members. And this was to gather evidence, hear statements, basically to help the police in their investigation by determining under which circumstance the Fawnschmitz died. Okay. It was determined that since they found blood on the clothes and bedding, like I said, clotted blood, meaning they were bleeding before they were burned, that yes, they were murdered. Ray didn't show up for that inquest. Okay. The next day, so this would have been the Thursday after the murders, Esther, the fiancé, Ray's fiancé, she was summoned. 
She was taken to the Hotel Quincy and questioned by detectives, but the detectives had an ulterior motive. I bet they did, as Uh they do. They were basically using Esther to lure Ray out of hiding, and it just so happened that Esther told Ray that she was summoned, so he knew she had to go talk to these guys, and it just so happened that Ray's lawyers were out of town that day, and it just so happened that Esther met up with Ray immediately after the questioning. Of course. Just like the detectives knew that she would. The detectives followed Esther. They eavesdropped a little bit on their conversation. And I'm sure Ray wanted to know everything. I'm sure. You know what I mean? And right in the middle of Esther's story, they barged in and served Ray with a subpoena. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. They took him to the Hotel Quincy and got a little statement from him. But from what I gathered, it seems like Ray didn't say anything that would help or hurt him. Or the police, really? A newspaper article said, It is stated unofficially, but probably accurately, that the deposition obtained from Fawnschmidt is not at all sensational in character. With the same self-possession and reticence which has characterized the boy ever since the murder was discovered, he answered the questions to put him and his answers were always guarded and generally non-committal. He did not incriminate himself, it is understood. So basically, they're using a lot of words to say that they didn't get shit out of Ray. Right. And we know why, because his lawyers had been coaching him since day one. Right. The next day, Ray's lawyers actually demanded that the state attorney arrest Ray immediately. His lawyers. What? <laughs> so that they could just get the show on the road and get his name cleared. Oh, okay. That's fucking bold, though. Yeah, wow. I think. I don't know. Those lawyers had some big dick energy. Big just dick saying. energy. But the state's attorney was like, no, I refuse to rush this. I can't be rushed. So the next week, a man who was working for the same family Ray was working for had to demolish an outhouse near the camp where Ray was staying. When he lifted up the like the actual frame of the outhouse, he found some items of bloody clothing that looked just like something Ray would wear. Oh, God. Ray. Yeah. Ray, I swear. Yeah. So I they was were, rooting for you. We were all rooting for you, Ray. God, Ray. So they were like, yep, that must belong to Ray. We must find him and arrest him immediately. To them, it was all the evidence they needed for the arrest, and they could really just, like, arrest anyone they felt like arresting back then. Mm -hmm. It's not like they needed the most compelling evidence, but, like, really, what's changed, you know? Right, yeah. Police found Ray at his uncle's house, and the Herald reported that it went like this. Sheriff, well, we have found your suit where you threw it away. Ray, oh, you have? Sheriff, yes, and we have found the red necktie which you wore on Friday night with the suit. Ray, oh yes, I sometimes do wear a red necktie. Sheriff, I guess you will have to come down to the jail with us. Ray, all right. Like, just A-plus reporting. This was in the paper. (laughs) That was in the paper. Okay. That's how their conversation went, I guess. Just just bravo, really. So despite the fact that they had the shitty evidence, some more compelling things were about to come to light. Ooh, ominous. Yeah. One was that Esther positively identified the bloody clothing as Ray's. Esther. (laughs) And the other was that Charles... Ray's father, who was murdered and burned, owned a shit ton of real estate. Ray's mom, Matilda, also owned a shit ton of real estate. And guess who would inherit those shit tons of real estate when they died? Surely not Ray. (laughs) It also came out that a few weeks prior to the murders, Charles's bank sent him a note saying that his account was overdrawn. 
the bad checks were written by Ray Ray. Ray. Charles had also been complaining to a friend about Ray's spending. Like, I don't know what to do with him. You know, he's outrageous. He won't stop. I, you know, I'm incredibly disappointed in Ray. Mm Mm-hmm. So Ray's arrested and he has to sit in jail. So it's like early October 1912 when they arrest him. And he sits in jail until late January of 1913, waiting for the grand jury to return indictments. He's charged with four counts of murder. So Charles, Matilda, Blanche, and Emma. And they did the thing where they were going to try him for each murder separately, depending on the outcome of the first trial, so that if he was acquitted, they could go back and try him for the others to avoid double jeopardy. So the book I read about this case, which we'll link and I'll talk a little bit more about later, it's called Lies Told Under Oath by Beth Lane. Her book goes into extreme detail about Ray's trial. I'm not going to go into extreme detail about the trial. But the main evidence that they had against Ray that they were really driving home were those wheel marks on the the property, the hounds that tracked his scent from the property to his tent in Quincy, and the bloody clothes that were determined to be his. They tried him for his sister Blanche's murder first, and he was found guilty. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Wow. But Ray's lawyers immediately asked for a new trial. In February of that year, the Illinois Supreme Court reversed that judgment because Ray's defense team was convinced that he would not get a fair trial in Adams County. The newspapers latched on to him from the beginning. A lot of people just, like, had made their minds up already that he was guilty right off the bat. So Ray's lawyers wanted a change of venue, and they got support from 120 affidavits filed by Adams County residents who agreed. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I agree, too. I don't think his trial was no, fair that's there. Why, no, that's why uh-uh. they do it the way they do it. Right. Now. You know? So then the state's attorney fired back and they filed 2,251 affidavits opposing a change of venue. Ray's lawyers filed their, like, official appeal right before Ray was supposed to hang in October. Oh. Because... They, well, they did it for a reason, because under Illinois law, a person couldn't be executed while there was an appeal open. They wanted to make sure they had enough time, like, they didn't want to rush the appeal and have it done, and they lose, and then right. he hangs. And it also meant that the court wouldn't be able to hear his case until their winter session, so it gave him more time to, to figure shit out. Stay alive. <laughs> yes. So he's been in jail for a year at this point, and when his case is finally heard, each side got an hour to present their arguments. Ray's attorney said that the trial was unfair because the Von Schmidt case aroused most intense interest all over the county. True. They said that hundreds of people visited the scene of the fire. Some witnesses testified that there were more than 200 automobiles there that day and several hundred buggies and wagons the day of the fire. Wow. Yeah. Over 4,000 people attended the sale of the family's personal effects. A lot of residents openly condemned Ray's attorneys for defending him. The sheriff had openly made statements saying that Ray was guilty. And a lot of people had asked if they could, quote, spring the trap at the execution or be the one to hang Ray essentially. People are so gross. Yeah. So th- these were like all of the reasons why they said it wasn't a fair trial and he right. deserves a new one somewhere else. Right. They talked about how the evidence was garbage like the bloodhounds and statements Ray made to police under duress and like all of this shit. They actually had like 300 pages wow. of arguments. On the other side the state's attorney just decided that he wasn't going to argue the case at this appeal. Oh. 
He was just done. He was there, but he just sat and watched. Because if no one argued for the state, it meant that the defense's time slot for arguments would be cut to a half hour instead of an hour. Really? Sneaky little bastards. Honestly, yeah. I tell you what. So on February 21st, 1914, a decision was made and everyone flipped the fuck out because they were giving Ray a new trial. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. Ray was quoted as saying, I knew from the start that I had not received a fair trial at the hands of the jury, for I am innocent of the crime, as sure as there is a God above. I have all confidence in the world in my attorneys, and am sure that all will turn out right in the end. Of course I am happy. Who wouldn't be when the gallows were looking you in the face? I am getting fat on the feed by the sheriff. I think the sheriff's um, wife or mom was like making him food. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, he sat in jail. And the decision will not make me sleep a bit better. I have never enjoyed better health and sweeter sleep. So Ray's new trial for the murder of his sister Blanche was moved to Macomb, Illinois. And oh, I know Macomb. Mm-hmm. And it started in October of 1914. And this one went a lot quicker. Both sides, like, I mean, they had practice already. They had done this. They were able to refine their arguments. Some things were thrown out and deemed inadmissible, etc. But the witnesses on both sides were less reliable than before for whatever reason. And their stories changed slightly. There were a lot of like, I don't remember and stuff like that. I feel like the longer you go, the less people are going to remember things. That's just fucking natural in any kind of case. Mm There was a lot more drama. The defense kept saying, he surely can't be guilty. Look at the way he's walking and talking. He's so calm. Because, like, during all of this, the first trial, the appeals, this new trial, Ray just kind of sat there uninterested and basically just kept saying, all right. Well, (laughs) all right. Well, I mean, what else do you say? I know. You know? Mm -hmm. So the jury deliberated, and the seed of reasonable doubt must have been planted, because on October 26th, they returned their verdict, not guilty. Okay. Ray wasn't there for the ver- the reading of the verdict. I don't know why. But the bailiff told him the news, and the paper reported, quote, When he told him that the verdict was in his favor, he did not make a reply of any kind. Not a muscle changed, not an eyelid flickered, as he received the news such as falls to the lot of man but seldom. The jury foreman was quoted as saying, I couldn't see where they showed enough evidence to convict that boy, though. None of the rest of the boys could figure out where he had time to get out there that Friday night, kill those four people, and then burn a part of one of them up and get back to Quincy. By George, I just don't see how it could be done. Innocent or guilty, that boy has got a wonderful lot of nerve. Like, and also I want to note too that he was considered very attractive. The okay. court, the courtrooms were full of women. Of course, bringing him flowers what for his cell. What is it with women and convicted or or trials? I don't you know? know. I don't know. But and he had a fiance. I I don't know. Weird. But everyone was just like under his like spell almost. Huh. It seemed like. But the thing is, Ray still had to await the trials for the other victims, so he hasn't quite gotten off scot-free yet. But the other thing is, like, what would be different? It's the same evidence. Right. Like, the jury and shit would be different. I don't know. I don't know. That's what I was thinking, like... Right. It doesn't make sense why you would be accused of one, or convicted of one, but not the others, or vice versa. It all just depends on the jury. Right. You know what I mean? But the state maintained that he should stand trial for the others because they were separate attacks, no matter if they happened 
in the same house on the same night, whatever. I, I don't know. They just really wanted him to hang. Yeah, they wanted him uh-huh. done. But neither Quincy or Macomb would be able to hold the trials now. So it was taking them some time to figure out Logistics, where to do it and, yeah. and all that. So something interesting that happened while everyone was waiting for the other trials, the sheriff and Quincy received a black hand letter. Have you ever heard of these? No. I had neither. So the letter that he got was postmarked from Macomb, and it said, Beware of your life and treat that boy with care. And there was a pencil drawing of a hand completely filled in, like shaded. Hmm. So these black hand letters, they date back to the mid-1700s, and by the late 1800s, they were common as a tactic used in Italian-American communities in large cities, especially Chicago, to scare and control people. Huh. The, I assume it's like the early Italian mafias here in the U.S. They would use the black hand letters to deliver threats. They always had a hand colored in black. Sometimes the hand would be holding a knife. Sometimes there would be drips of blood. A lot of the times they would have a demand for money, etc. So the sheriff got one of these. Wow. And they're not by the city. Right. Quincy's not that big. Right. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. In January of 1915, it was finally fucking time for trial number three, which they decided would be held in Princeton, Illinois. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. This would be the trial for Emma, the school teacher. Okay. Ray was found not guilty of her murder, and this is when the state's attorney essentially gave up on ever getting a guilty verdict for Ray. Sure. They weren't going to pursue charges on, on his mom's murder or his dad's. Really? Yeah. Because okay. he just figured it's it's not going to happen and we can't keep dragging this on. Right. So, Resources. Yeah. Time. Yep. Money. So Ray was now free on the condition that he was to stay far, far away from Adams County. Wow. Ray waited in his jail cell so that he wouldn't have to try and, like, get through the crowds of pissed off people. And then one of his lawyers took him to the train station where he bought a ticket to Peoria. And the thing was, like, he had just been in jail for, like, three years and he had nothing to his name. Right. He ended up moving to Wichita, Kansas. Like, this, this couple took him in. I was going to say, he could be like our great-great-grandfather. <laughs> right. Now, Esther, Ray's fiance, uh-huh. she was called in as a witness in, I'm pretty sure, all three of the trials, and she never really wavered either way. She never, like, said, I think he did it, or he's innocent. She kind of was just, like, steadfast. Sure. Her dad had kept her away from Ray during all of this. They Like, she didn't visit him in jail. They only saw each other from across the room during the trials. There was one report that said when everyone was sure that Ray was going to hang, Esther's dad took her out of the state so that she wouldn't have to face that. And I think it was the second trial. It was noted that she wasn't wearing her engagement ring anymore. Ooh. And after that last trial and the other charges being dropped, she didn't see him then either before Ray left the area. I think she just felt a lot of, I mean, like horror at first, I'm sure, when it first happened. That's your fiance being accused of this. But then I think she was just like full of shame, you know? Yeah. And she was probably getting scrutinized, like the newspapers and I'm sure in all of this. So they drifted apart. But in January of 1916, Ray had come back to Payson to finalize his family's estate. And while he was in town, he decided to stop by Esther's house to see if he could win her back. She either couldn't face him or wouldn't face him, and when he knocked on the front door, she ran out the back door, barefoot, across a snowy field, into a neighbor's house. She was like, fuck no, Ray Ray, we're not doing this. It's almost like she was afraid of him. Yeah. Well, Ray followed her, 
fuck the neighbor answered, not cool yeah the neighbor answered the door and told him like no she doesn't want to see you yeah and ray asked is it does she not want to see me or does her family not want her to see me and the neighbor said it was both oh. so ray returned to kansas Esther went on to have a fantastic life. She graduated from the Dramatic Arts Department of the Quincy College of Music. She was a gifted elocutionist, which is a public speaker. I didn't oh, know what that wow. was, but it was like a, I'm not. That was like a that's a good word. Elocutionist. Elo elocutionist. I'm probably not even saying it right. Probably not. Oh well. She, she ended up working at the college, and she met and fell in love with a man named Frank Purcell, and they married in Chicago in 1919. So after Ray went to go stalk Esther and Payson that time, he went back to Kansas, like I said, and he was promptly arrested for stealing and selling cars. Oh God. He was found guilty at trial and struck a deal to join the army instead of going to jail. He got a draft card, but he was found unfit for duty for one oh, reason or another. Yeah. So that meant jail, but Ray decided to skip town instead. He didn't want to go to jail. He, he was already there, God, been there, I've done, done that. that already, and it sucks. <laughs> so the family who had bailed him out when he was arrested... Mm -hmm. They were stuck with his bond of $1,500. That's no. about thirty-four grand today. God. Like, what a fucking dick. Like, those poor stupid people, first yeah. of all. I'm not going to bail anyone out of jail. I'm sorry. No. But, like, what a dickhole, Ray. Honestly. He's getting worse and worse as the yeah. story goes on. So Ray fled to Kansas City where he got in more trouble because he was a very stupid boy. And at a hearing for something else that he was arrested for, the judge asked, haven't you anyone that cares for you? Anyone that you, if not for your own sake, could do right for you? And Ray answered, I did once. And that's wow. either really chilling or really sad, yeah. depending on if you think he did it or not. Right. So he spent a little time in prison for that, and no one's really sure what happened to him after that. Some say that he was murdered by the mafia in New York in the 30s, and some say that he settled down and married a preacher's daughter and had a family. Oh, God. I, we just don't know. I'm, if you're listening to this. Yeah. And he's your grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> if you have the last name of Fawn Schmidt or the maiden name of Fawn Schmidt, you might have a little bit of a backstory you on might. your hands. I don't know. I'm leaning toward he got away with murdering his family and Emma. Yeah. He wanted that fucking land. I don't know. I, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard knowing. I mean, the trials were fucked. At least the first trial was fucked. Yeah. I don't know. I don't um, know either. I think he was greedy and arrogant. At the very least, that doesn't make him a killer, but yeah, I don't right. know. I think he wanted that inheritance. And also, as far as the Velisca murders and all the other axe murders going on at the time, if it was the same person or persons, the fire at the Fawnschmitz would have been like a major change in MO. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? For sure. Unless it was accidental. I, I don't know. You never I don't know. know. But yeah, no, that, mm -hmm. that was definitely different. Right. And that's it. Fuck, the story man. of the Fawnschmidt murders. So neither of our, both of our stories mm -hmm. have a prime suspect. Yes. But neither of them have a for sure suspect. Mm -mm. A convicted suspect. Right. And I didn't see anything about them like having any other suspects or no. anything besides crazy. ray they were just so focused on him crazy crazy yeah and that uh that that's that's it that's it in a nutshell guys in a big ass nutshell mm -hmm. are you reading watching or listening to anything i am i'm still watching bly manor i can't i don't remember what episode i'm on but i'm still mm -hmm. watching that as i can listening i don't believe i listen to anything really 
lately. Reading, I am. I'm reading Mary Burton's I'm Watching You. I'm reading Megan Golden's The Night Swim. I'm reading Kay Moore's Desert Rose. And I'm reading Kirsten Majlin's The Good Neighbors. I like to bounce back and forth. It really depends on my mood. Yeah. Do I want to hear about a stalker? Do I want to hear about neighbors who are kind of fucking batshit crazy? Do I want to hear about an abduction? It just depends on the night. See, I get my storylines mixed up if I read more than one at a time. Yeah, no. See, I don't... don't, Maybe sometimes, but not normally. What about you? Um, Well, I did buy that book, The Lies Told Under Oath, about this, the Fonshamit murders. Sure. That's by Beth Lane. And she just, like I said, she went to town. If you, like, are very interested and want to take a deep dive, that's the book for you. Okay. Um, I also bought the poetry book, I'm Not Your Final Girl, by Claire C. Holland. Mm-hmm. But that's really good. It's kind of, um, it's horror movie themed about the, the final girls of real horror movies and, like, them fighting back. It's just, it's good. I recommend that one. Listening to... I'm not doing anything. I'm not watching anything. No. I'm not listening to anything. Oh, I did listen to a couple episodes of Full Body Chills. Oh, yeah. That you, you had recommended. You yeah. yeah. One from like the last season and one newer mm-hmm. one. Um, yeah. I just love a good ghost story. Yeah. They're fun. They're short. They're, yeah. they're creepy. I would love to do that like yeah. sometime later down the road. Mm-hmm. Real quick, you know, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. But first, we have two new patrons, Christina and Jessica. Christina is a cruel accomplice and Jessica is a co-conspirator and we fucking love both of you so much. You guys have been around. Well, actually, Christina has been around in our lives for a while, Mm -hmm. but she's a newer listener of the pod and she's just fucking binging this shit. Right. Well, and I know Jessica from before Hannah was born. But Jessica is like a long time. She's been with the pod for a long time Mm -hmm. since I've, I mean, I've been seeing her name, I think since we started almost, if not just right around there. Mm -hmm. Um, So Christina and Jessica... Thank you so fucking much for becoming official Patreon members of the Cruel Coven. Thank you, guys. We also just have to thank everyone real quick. So, Jessica, Christina, Katie, Katie, Leslie, Angela, Chastity, Jen, Crystal, Autumn, Tara, Chloe, Kat, Danielle, Maggie, and last but not least, Juan. We fucking love you guys. Thank you so much for being amazing patrons. Thank you, guys. Where can... Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. We love you a lot. We love you. Hey, guys, you can send us an email at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. Look at our Instagram. That's got our link tree. That is at cruelandunusualthepod. I tweet at Cruel Unusual Pod. You can check out our website. That is crueltinkmedia.com. That's got our merch. It's got the Patreon wall that Tori's going to update immediately. Mm-hmm. That's got um, sources, show notes, all, all that All jazz. of that shit. And um, stuff about our books. Someone was asking about yeah. our books. Yeah, all of the <laughs> books are on there. You can find everything on there, as well as on Amazon for books or my right. website, wherever. Right. That is crueltinkmedia.com. Once Dot again, com. you can join our Facebook group. And where is that? On Facebook. Mm-hmm. And that is cruel and unusual colon the group. The group. On Facebook, in case you missed it. It's on Facebook. It's on Facebook. It's a Facebook it's group. It's on Facebook. I you don't guys, know if you've heard of them. Happy fucking Halloween. Yeah, you guys, this is the last episode of the spooky, creepy season. The first one from Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. And I'm Katie. And we love you. <laughs> love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.